Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, presented by Canon Press. This week's episode is the opening chapters of Toby Sumter's No Mere Mortals, Marriage for People Who Will Live Forever. Listen to the full audiobook today on the Canon app. Introduction So you are married. Congratulations. Cheers. Well done. Maybe you just got married and you're wanting to make sure the cement dries and the foundation is plumb. Or maybe you've been married for many years now and you're looking for some retooling, a refresher, a little brush-up on what this whole marriage thing is. Or maybe your marriage is in trouble and you're looking for help. Or maybe you aren't quite married yet. You're just engaged and looking to start off your new life together on the right path. No matter which of these you are, this book begins with our only hope for a Christian marriage. Jesus Christ. Then it walks through some of the most important principles for building or rebuilding a strong foundation and walking together with your spouse in the Lord. If you aren't even engaged yet, feel free to read this book, but just be prepared for the fact that I'm not covering a whole bunch of stuff about dating and courtship and how to know if he's the one or she's the one and how to maneuver through the various relationship minefields. This book assumes that you put a ring on it, or at the very least, that you've made up your mind and agreed to take the plunge. True Confessions The basic shape of this book has grown out of many years of premarital counseling. The material here has been significantly expanded for the entire marriage gambit, but if my language occasionally slips into premarital counseling mode, now you know why. I also need to note that I have had the great honor of ministering in close proximity to Pastor Douglas Wilson for many years, marinating in his books and sermons and Bible studies. I have tried to note when I'm sure I'm repeating something he has said, but anyone who is familiar with his work will recognize his pervasive influence in what follows. And if you haven't read his family books, I cannot recommend them to you strongly enough, especially Reforming Marriage and Federal Husband. So whether you've been married for a while, or just got married, or even just got engaged, I hope what follows is a helpful summary of some of the most basic biblical principles for Christian marriage applied to our modern day. We will begin this book with a couple of topical chapters, and then work through a number of verses from Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3, before closing with a few more topical chapters. That's the basic structure, but before we get down to brass tacks, let me sketch you something of a biblical picture of marriage. In recent decades, we have essentially reduced marriage to a permanent roommate situation with sexual benefits. Our assumptions about the purpose and mission of the family make the biblical commands seem obtuse or oppressive. As my friend, Pastor Chris Wiley, points out, when it comes to discussing the leadership of the man and the submission of the woman, it can sound like the Bible is insisting that the man controls the TV remote since, for many people, what they're going to watch seems like the biggest decision that needs to be made in the home. But the biblical picture of the family is something far more glorious, far more dangerous, something more like a nuclear reactor. If moderns balk at the Old Testament's death penalty for adultery, Leviticus 20, verse 10, or the death penalty for rebellious son, Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21, this is not because we are highly evolved and enlightened moderns, but rather because we have such a low view of marriage and family. The Bible has such severe penalties for the destruction of a home because of the resulting destructive fallout. 
The Bible says that God hates divorce because of how it covers one's garment with violence. Malachi 2, verse 16. And we nod naively, still thinking that the Old Testament penalties seem sort of harsh and barbaric. Barbaric? For the last 50 years, the sexual revolution has championed everything from pornography to homosexuality to even the beginnings of full-blown pederasty. And the price for that perversion party has been the blood of over 60 million babies and counting. And we think God was kind of harsh and barbaric? No, we are the harsh and barbaric ones. Even the most ardent defender of Second Amendment rights has to have had second thoughts on the question of whether every private citizen ought to have access to nukes. I mean, the usual claim is that the citizenry ought to have the means to resist tyrannical governments. And, well, if the government has nukes, shouldn't the citizens? But those stakes are extremely high, and an accident would have far-reaching consequences. And suddenly, the most dyed-in-the-wool libertarian wonders if there ought to be at least a little barbed wire around that catastrophe waiting to happen. Bring this back to the family. God has placed his image in man, and every human being bears the imprint of the eternal, infinite, sovereign God. There is nothing in all the world quite so powerful as people. And therefore, the place where people are made is basically a nuclear reactor, and the stakes are much higher than we realize. We are making people who will live forever people with souls that will grow into the greatest horrors or most glorious beings. And those people will go on to build and invent and create and love and fight and dance and make more people. We are in the process of setting off reactions that will do great good or great harm. The good news of the gospel is that the all-powerful, all-sufficient God has come into this world in the person of his Son in order to set off another nuclear reaction a reaction of blessing that is in the process of commandeering all of our familial reactions and filling this world with God's life and light. Too often we misunderstand the words of Jesus regarding the future of marriage. We hear him say that we will not marry or be given in marriage in heaven, and we think he was saying that we ought not think so highly of marriage. But that cannot be the case since the whole Bible ends in a marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So it's simply not true to say that there is no marriage in heaven. There is at least one marriage in heaven, the marriage of the Lamb. Sure, our earthly marriages are transfigured into something far more glorious, but the point is not at all that marriage is not such a big deal. Rather, the point is that our earthly problems will not be problems in heaven. And that is because all of our weddings are pointing to the great wedding. Paul says in Ephesians that our earthly marriages point to the great marriage, and he says it's a great mystery. Now, we need not buy into the Roman Catholic view that makes marriage a sacrament, but neither do we need to back away from Paul's language in the slightest. It really is a great mystery, a glorious mystery, a powerful mystery. From Adam and Eve, to Abraham and Sarah, to Boaz and Ruth, to Solomon and the Shulamite, to Hosea and Gomer, to Joseph and Mary, God has been revealing a great mystery, something glorious about the way the world is about the way God himself is, about Christ and the church. Getting marriage right has implications far beyond the home. The officers of the church are to be men who rule their own households well, fathers in the church, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Corinthians 3. Civil magistrates are to be foster fathers and nursing mothers, Isaiah 49, verse 23. 
Our English Old Testament closes with the promise of Malachi to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Malachi 4 verse 6. Do we want our land blessed, our businesses blessed, our churches blessed, and our public squares blessed? Then we need to get marriage right, which is to say we need to get family right. Christ died on the cross to take the curse of sin and death, in order to turn the hearts of fathers and sons, in order to heal families, in order that a sinful man, an immortal soul, and a sinful woman, an immortal soul, might make vows in a church before witnesses, immortal souls, in full assurance that God's blessing rests upon them and will follow them and their children, immortal souls all, all the days of their life, and forever. Chapter 1. Mary in the Lord. What is your testimony? Tell the story of how you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you grew up in a Christian family or in the church, tell that story. Were there particular moments in your life growing up where you have experienced God's grace in your life? Where you came to understand more fully what it meant to be a child of God? Were there particular seasons of growth, a repentance, or doubt, or rebellion? If you grew up outside the faith, tell how the Lord drew you to Himself. Go ahead, I'll wait. Take turns. Tell your story out loud. After sharing your testimonies, take turns answering one more question. If someone asked you why you were a Christian, what would you say? How would you summarize the good news of Jesus in one or two sentences? What does it mean that you are a follower of Jesus? Read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 10. Notice the final couple of verses where Paul summarizes his testimony. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8-10 through 10. Whether you have known Jesus all of your life, or only more recently experienced the grace of God, His grace is never in vain. It's never impotent, or weak, or futile. His grace is powerful. Sometimes His grace can seem more amazing to us, like when God saves someone like Paul on his way to Damascus breathing threats against the followers of Jesus, absolutely convinced that they are the enemies of God, and then, bam, God knocks them down and radically changes them. Maybe you or someone you know was in high-handed rebellion, addicted to drugs or alcohol, sexually promiscuous, suicidal, or just full of plain old vanilla devil pride, and God saved them. Those are glorious stories glorious testimonies of God's grace. But there are no boring stories of grace. When God grips us as young children and preserves us from some of the most ugly manifestations of sin in the world, that, too, is God's amazing grace. With true and humble gratitude, we may say we have a boring testimony, in the sense that we've never gone through a period of prolonged rebellion, joined a biker gang, robbed a bank, or partied like pagans. Because of our parents' faithfulness and God's grace, our testimony can seem gloriously boring. 
and thank God for those testimonies. But properly speaking, God's grace is never actually boring, never truly mundane, never weak. It's always high octane. This is because nobody deserves God's grace. And while God's grace is truly wonderfully free, salvation is not free. Your salvation and my salvation was terribly expensive. Christ purchased us with his precious blood. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. No one comes to God with a minor debt or with a little sin problem. Everyone is dead in Adam, each a lifeless corpse, enslaved to sin and death and Satan, whether you were three years old or 13 years old or 30 years old. Every one of us owed a debt we could never pay. Every one of us had a just death sentence hanging over our heads. And every one of us was redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. No testimony should be boring because every testimony is about the most precious, most valuable thing in all the world, our Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, and His blood that washes us clean and grants us the gift of everlasting life. So let me challenge you. If you aren't used to telling your testimony, or if you gave a glib two-sentence testimony, my parents were Christians and I grew up in the church and that's about it, stop here and try again. Think back on your life. Where have you experienced God's grace? Have you witnessed answered prayer? Have you seen Him at work in reconciling broken relationships? Have you known His forgiveness? You should be able to tell stories of these things. And if you really can't talk about God's grace in your life, let me challenge you to seriously consider whether you really are a Christian. It's not enough to have Christian parents. It's not enough to have been baptized. It's not enough to grow up in the church. Do you know Christ? Do you know that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? One can be a Christian outwardly, formally, but not a true Christian inwardly. Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. The Jews did have Abraham as their covenantal father, and they had the genealogical paperwork to prove it. But they actually had the devil as their real father. John 8, verse 44. Paul writes to the Corinthians, people he addresses as sanctified in Christ Jesus, and says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? A true Christian has not only been baptized on the outside and professed faith outwardly, but a true Christian has also had his heart washed clean by the blood of Christ and has been born again by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 10 verse 22 and Titus 3 verse 5. This doesn't mean that you need to have seen a miraculous vision or spoken in tongues or had some kind of dramatic emotional experience. But there should be fruit in your life, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Do you see evidence of the Spirit's work in your life, convicting you of sin, conforming you to the image of Christ, 
causing you to grow in love for God and your neighbor more and more as the months and years go by. This is actually an enormously important point to make at the beginning of a book about marriage, because the Bible is incredibly clear that Christians are only to marry other Christians, true believers in Christ. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4. And Paul makes a similar point in the New Covenant. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. And likewise, while a Christian should seek to preserve a marriage that already exists with a non-believer, if the non-believer departs, the Christian is not under bondage. In this case, or when a spouse dies, a Christian may remarry, but only in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. In the early church, one of the slanders the pagans spread about the Christians was that they practiced incest, intermarrying between brothers and sisters. Of course, this was not true at all, but the slander grew out of the Christian commitment to only marrying other Christians. Going all the way back to the Song of Songs, even Solomon referred to his spouse as his sister. Song of Songs 4, verse 9 through 12, and chapter 5, verse 1. If you would not marry an unbeliever, why would you date or court an unbeliever? If you would not marry an unbeliever, why would you flirt with an unbeliever? Why would you keep up an overly friendly familiarity with an unbeliever? if he or she is not even an option. Christians should be known for their commitment to marry only in the Lord, only in the family of God. I know I said this was a book for married people, not a book for people courting or dating, but I couldn't help myself. Some things just need saying. A little further on this track before we move on. Maybe you're thinking this has all gotten pretty deep and introspective. Shouldn't we just take a compatibility test or something? Well. Actually, that is sort of what we're doing. The very first item on the list for compatibility for Christians is salvation in Christ. Non-Christians certainly can get married, and they really are married since marriage is not just a thing for Christians. It's a creational institution for the good of all humans and human society. But Christians are commanded to marry in the Lord because when a man or woman comes to know Jesus, so much of who they are is affected changed, and transformed. Our priorities are completely different. What motivates us is different. We have a new set of desires and goals, and in Jesus, we have been given a very specific mission. There are so many good things that are different about a man and a woman, different family backgrounds, different customs, different cultures, different tastes, interests, hobbies, and preferences, not to mention the wonderful sexual differences between a man and a woman. To try to fit a man and a woman together who have a different reason for living, a different fundamental motivation for what they do, this is a recipe for disaster, disappointment, and heartbreak. And there is no shortage of marital train wrecks documenting this sad reality. Yes, you might have collected stamps or loved skiing or been a pretty good singer before you were Christian, but even those skills or gifts or hobbies are reoriented to Christ when you become a Christian. Before, they may have been distractions, idols, 
covers for insecurity, but in Jesus they become gifts to enjoy, gifts to share, and somehow, we pray, they become part of our sacrifice of praise, spiritual acts of worship to our Creator and Savior. And if this is true for hobbies and pastimes, how much more so does it affect our vocational, educational, and familial aspirations and dreams? How do you decide which job to take? How do you organize your finances? Do you value children? Are you committed to fruitfulness in the marriage bed? Do you share a biblical understanding of the role of husband and wife? Do you share standards of fidelity and purity? Is it ever acceptable to view pornography? How will you discipline your children? How will you educate them? Will your boys and girls be raised differently according to their biological sex? Why? Does it matter? In order to begin answering these questions, you must have a standard, a rule for life. This is why it is of the utmost importance that you marry someone who shares the foundational reorientation to Christ and His Word. Someone who understands that Jesus is Lord of every square inch of your life. Someone who is just as committed as you are to taking up the cross of Christ and following Him in obedience wherever He leads. Christians are committed to obey whatever the Bible says about finances, children, sex, vocation, and everything else. In other words, a true Christian is someone who has surrendered in principle. Whatever the Bible says, that's what we are committed to, our whole marriage long. The Apostle Paul describes what it's like to be a Christian this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2 verse 20. Do you resonate with this? Do you know what Paul means? Knowing the love of Christ goes all the way down into our deepest desires, our identities as men and women, as human beings made in God's image who are now being renewed into the image of Christ. We no longer live. Now Christ lives in us. Now whatever we do, we do it to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, which is to say that we are committed to obeying Christ. Given God's love, God's grace, God's goodness pouring over us, we want to live our lives as living sacrifices of praise. Why? Because He is worthy. He is our Lord, our Master, and we obey Him in everything because He saved us from sin, death, and Satan. Our hearts burn within us with gratitude, with joy, with gladness, with relief. Our debts have all been paid. Our hearts are clean. And by the grace of God, we have been sent out into the world to fill it with His goodness and glory. He made the world and filled it with gifts. And He has always intended for men and women made in His image to take those gifts and build upon them, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with garden cities full of good food and fine wine, creative technology and industry, inspiring arts and architecture, with excellent and sacrificial care for the weak, the sick, the elderly, the disabled, not to mention courageous service in politics, economics, education, zoology, and tourism, and everywhere else I left out. The gift of Christian marriage is the gift of friendship and an enormous help in this mission of following Jesus. There is a biblical ordering in God's assignments to men and women respectively. They are oriented to one another and to their various vocations in different ways. More on that later. But there is also a foundational, 
discipleship mutuality in this. When two Christians marry, they are first of all brother and sister in Christ, and God knows exactly what He's doing with both of them. His ultimate goal for both of them is Christ-likeness, and marriage is one of the most objective places where we can speak with confidence about what God is up to. He is saying you need this particular woman with all her quirks and peculiarities and gifts in order to grow up into the likeness and maturity of Christ. And you need this particular man with all his unique quirks and peculiarities and gifts in order to grow up into the likeness and maturity of Jesus. By God's design, Christian marriage is one of the ordinary means of sanctification. So you want a Christian marriage? We begin here. We begin with your testimony, with your story of God's grace, with your identity firmly fixed in Jesus Christ, with this shared commitment. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You belong to Jesus. You have been born again to a new and living hope. You are on a mission of seeking glory and honor and immortality. Romans 2 verse 7. Jesus is your Lord and Master. So this whole thing is not really about you. It's about Him. It's about His plan, His mission in this world. Most marital problems can be traced to problems here. Sometimes you thought your spouse was a Christian. Sometimes one spouse becomes a Christian later in life. Or sometimes very little time or effort has been spent explicitly anchoring your marriage in Christ. And one or both spouses are consciously or unconsciously pursuing their own mission, their own plans, and no wonder there's conflict. If you want your marriage to be blessed, it needs to line up with what Jesus is doing. You need His mission to be your mission. Therefore, His Word must shape everything about your plan. You want to live for Him together, right? Questions for discussion 1. Why are there not really any boring testimonies, even if you grew up in the faith? Two. What's the difference between someone who is a Christian outwardly and a true Christian who is also one inwardly? 3. What does the Bible say about Christians marrying non-Christians? Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. 4. Why is it so important for husband and wife to have a shared standard for morality? And what is that standard for Christians? 5. How do Christians do everything to the glory of God? What does that actually mean, practically? How do you know for sure you're doing it? Chapter 2. Rightly Ordered Love Life We began with your testimony and your life in Christ because this is the most significant thing about you. It goes all the way to your core. It is more significant than the family you were born into. It is more significant than your past sins and mistakes, thank God. And it orients your goals, priorities, standards, and mission for the future. In other words, even though marriage certainly is one of the most significant moments and decisions of your life, and it really is, being found in Christ, being born again, belonging to Him, is more important, more significant. On your wedding day, tons about you changes. It's true. A woman takes her husband's name. 
A man becomes responsible before God for his wife. You have to learn to live together. What you have taken for granted about many things in life, like how to fold socks or how to organize the pantry or when to get up in the morning or how to prioritize your budget, some or all of that changed. The day before your wedding, you were a single man or a single woman, and the day after your wedding, you were a husband or a wife. You had become one flesh. You had formed a new family. You changed, and many things in your life changed. Like kids, for example. They will change, or already have changed, you even more. But here's the thing. Despite the massive, monumental changes that occurred, or will occur, after your wedding, there is something even more massive, even more fundamental, that will never change. On the day before your wedding, you were a son or daughter of the king, beloved of God, purchased by the blood of Jesus, secure in his firm grasp forever. And the day after your wedding, you were still that blood-bought child of God, saved for eternity. That identity can never change, shift, or be affected in the slightest. And this is so important. You need to understand this deep in your bones, because many marital problems arise from misunderstanding this. People say that their wife or husband completes them. They say they are lost without their spouse. They say there was a hole in their heart without them. And there is a sense in which that is true. I get that. Love is like that. And I thank God for it. But there is another sense in which those sentiments are actually all wrong. There is a sense in which those sentiments can be pure idolatry. In other words, if you are placing all your hopes on marriage, if you think that being Mr. Husband or Mrs. Wife or finding Mr. or Mrs. Right is going to complete you and fulfill all your deepest longings and desires, I've got news for you. I don't mean to be the pessimist or the anti-romantic. I love my wife, and I can't imagine life without her. But knowing Jesus Christ means that my identity is rooted first and foremost in Him. In fact, Jesus says that we cannot follow Him rightly unless we are willing to give up our dearest loves. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, verses 26 and 27. Another way to say this is that you will be the very best husband you can be, or the very best wife you can be, when you love Jesus more than your spouse. If you love your spouse second best, you love him or her in the best possible way. But if you get this wrong, if you put your husband or your wife or even your hopes in being a husband or wife or father or mother above your love for Christ, you are asking of that human relationship what it is incapable of giving. This is what idols always are. They are finite, created things that we are trying to trick infinite grace out of. We are trying to find in them what God offers to us in Himself. We are immortals, made for infinite joy and glory, and the only place we can find that is in the infinite God Himself. An idol need not be an actual statue or image. It can just as easily be an image in your head, a scene of happiness, an expectation of the perfect husband, the perfect wife, the perfect sex the perfect children, 
family, house, job, whatever. That's still a graven image. It's still an imagined reality that you are placing your hopes in for your joy, happiness, pleasure, or success. But your husband cannot be all that you need. Your wife cannot be all that you need. Marriage and family are truly wonderful gifts of God, but they must be received with gratitude for what they actually are and not for what you wish they would be. Again, my point here is not to rain on your romance. My point is to help you put your love life in the right place, namely, below your love of God. When we order our loves rightly, it frees us to love and be loved more freely, more gladly according to the purposes of God. We want our expectations to be as high as God's are, and not any higher, and not any lower. We want to receive from God what He has for us in the gift of marriage. If we take Scripture seriously, as we should, it turns out that marriage is a huge gift, full of blessing. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 18, verse 22. This starting point of finding our ultimate identity in Christ teaches us how to love and value our spouse biblically. There are unique responsibilities given to husbands and wives, and we will get to those soon. But the first thing is to view one another in Christ. In the first instance, you are not husband and wife. In the first instance, you are brother and sister. God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. Man and woman share equally in God's image. Men and women have unique ways of displaying the glory of God, but we were created to rule the world together, to bear God's image together, to be friends, companions, brothers and sisters. And this fundamental equality in worth, in dignity, in bearing God's image in the world is underlined by our salvation in Christ. In Christ, there is no distinctions in the grace bestowed to men and women. Galatians 3, verse 28. Just as there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3, verse 29. In fact, this is one of those places where modern Bible translations often mess things up. There's a reason why the Bible freely refers to all Christians as sons and brothers. But many modern Bible translators, out of fear that women might feel left out, adjust the language to the gender-neutral children, or the so-called inclusive brothers and sisters. But Paul knows exactly what he's doing. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. This is not a remotely sexist thing. We are all sons, men and women alike, because we have been adopted as sons in and through the work of God's Son. In the ancient world, it was common for an inheritance to be passed down through free male heirs. But the whole point of this passage is actually to affirm the inheritance of those who might be thought to be left out, slaves, Gentiles, women. Paul says that all of them have received the adoption of sons in the Son. In other words, to make this point in modern virtue-signaling parlance, sons and brothers in Christ 
are inclusive biblical terms, and we do well not to try to improve upon God's own word choices. Peter makes a very similar point when he says that a husband must honor his wife as a co-heir of the grace of life. 1 Peter 3 verse 7. This means that a man should look at his wife or fiancé and gasp. Do you know what God has given you or is in the process of giving you? That woman, that terrifying, glorious woman made in his image was created by God and redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in her. She is of immense value to God. She is precious to Him. She is His daughter, an heir of the promise, a co-heir of the grace of life with you. Do you feel that? Does it make your chest knot up? Do you get a little bit afraid? Maybe a lot afraid? Good. Hold that pose. C.S. Lewis writes, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So then, there is nothing in all of creation by which you may get closer to the presence of the living God than when you are in the presence of another human being. This is absolutely true, and how much more ought a man to think this of his own wife? How much more ought a woman to think this of her husband? Part of what makes Christian marriage such a blessing is the opportunity to share life with another human being made in God's image cleansed by the blood of Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, destined for everlasting splendor. There are no mere mortals. You are married to an immortal. You will marry an immortal. God's creation of man in his own image is more than enough to inspire deep reverence and awe for all human life, and an even deeper reverence for redeemed human life in Christ. But the gift of Christian marriage brings that reverence home. This is no empty reverence. It is not merely the fact of future glory or future horror that ought to give us significant pause. It is also the fact that we are building that glory or horror right now, this minute. Immortals do no insignificant things. Going to work, going to school, writing, building, singing, laughing, eating. In all of these things, we are shaping and being shaped into what we will be forever. And then on top of all of that, we are also entrusted with making new people, more immortals. We are bringing them into existence through biological conception, but the project hardly ends there. All day long, we are in varying degrees helping to form the kind of person who is aiming for everlasting glory or everlasting disgust. 
This begins in the marriage covenant itself. We are loving and serving, leading and following, giving and receiving in a way that is either aimed at eternal glory, peace, and joy, or not. But lest this seem all too esoteric, we are also simply talking about whether our marriages line up with heaven or not. Families are where immortals are made. And this means that the act of forming new families and growing them and maintaining them in a Christian way means recognizing that there is immortality wound through it all. It all has significance and meaning because of eternity. There is no extraneous dirty dish washed, no floor scrubbed, no encouraging word given, no comforting hug extended, no day of hard work offered that goes unnoticed, that gets lost in the cosmos. In Christ, none of it is in vain. We are building a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That kingdom is principally built out of people. But many of those people were made out of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, prepared with Christian love. And that love will live forever. Questions for Discussion 1. On the day after your wedding, what will not have changed? 2. How can people make idols in their imaginations or expectations concerning marriage? Are you tempted to this in any way? 3. How do modern Bible translations sometimes obscure a really important point about men and women in Christ? See Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Why does it matter? 4. What does C.S. Lewis say about people? What are the two possibilities he highlights? 5. How does the idea of your spouse or fiancé being an immortal make you think about him or her? How does it shape how you think about marriage, family? If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full audiobook now available on the Canon app.